This video has been brought to you by Squarespace. New York City has some of the most recognizable structures in America. Everyone recalls the Empire State Building as a primary example, as it's one of the most recognizable structures in the world. But I'd argue that the architecture giving the city its pizzazz is from another time, and that much of what makes the city iconic has faded away, only to be replaced by soulless structures unworthy of local legacy. Back in the 1800s, there was a building that defined New York, and yet it has vanished from the skyline and common memory. Officially called the Pulitzer's Building, it came to be known as the World Building, which for its time was both the tallest in the city and the tallest office building in the world. And although comprehensive sources on the building itself are scarce, almost as if it was intended to be forgotten, today we will recapture its magic. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. In order to discuss the Pulitzer Building, we must first discuss its namesake. And yes, it's the Pulitzer you have in mind right now. Joseph Pulitzer was one of the most powerful and influential journalists in the United States' history. Born in Mako, Hungary on April the 10th, 1847, and raised around modern-day Budapest, the younger Pulitzer initially sought out a career in the military. He initially attempted to enlist in the Austrian army and later attempted to join Napoleon III's foreign legion to serve under the French in Mexico and the British Army for service in India. However, his poor eyesight and physical frailty, which would haunt him across his entire life, kept him from serving in these ventures. But in the 1860s, there was a unique opportunity for military service. As he continued searching for military jobs, his travels took him to Hamburg in modern-day Germany, and it was there that he encountered a bounty recruiter willing to take him on, as there was indeed a dire need for any kind of ready soldier. The United States in the 1860s was not having a good time to say the least. The issue of slavery had torn a great divide in the nation, culminating in the American Civil War. This conflict spilled unimaginable amounts of American blood, and outdated military doctrine played a significant role in the deaths. Civil War generals mainly subscribed to tactics performed by generals in the early 19th century, but the technology had outgrown the strategies. Formations involving tightly packed lines of soldiers and attacks on narrow fronts worked with the older and more inaccurate smoothbore muskets, but rifling technology changed this. You see, rifling is where ridges are carved into the inside of a gun's barrel, giving the fired bullet a spin, dramatically increasing its accuracy. With rifled muskets and cannons, these old tactics to compensate for inaccuracy became dangerously obsolete. And the other compounding factors were also pretty scary, as death from disease was also a major possibility. In fact, for every man killed in combat during the Civil War, two more died of disease. And yet surprisingly, from across an ocean, Joseph Pulitzer apparently wanted to get involved. The bounty recruiter Pulitzer encountered asked for men to enlist in the Union Army to substitute for a draftee, a process permitted by the United States draft system at the time. Pulitzer did not enter the Union Army under the recruiter, keeping the enlistment bounty holy for himself after crossing the Atlantic. One story has it that he jumped off the ship as it approached Boston Harbor, swimming to the shore and enlisting as his own man. Though this wasn't likely due to a sudden American patriot, 
patriotism, it was more likely that the recruiter had offered a less favorable deal. He traveled from Boston to New York to enlist in New York City, which offered the best terms. Serving in the first New York Cavalry Regiment known as the Lincoln Cavalry, he found himself in a league with many German speakers. This was very fortunate for him as he spoke fluent French, German, and Hungarian. He knew very little English. Pulitzer served with the Lincoln Cavalry for eight months, ending with the conclusion of the American Civil War. Afterwards, he traveled to St. Louis where he eventually studied English and law, finally getting into journalism. He found his stride in writing with his new knowledge of the English language he took to politics, amazingly gaining control of the St. Louis Dispatch and the St. Louis Post, merging them to the Post-Dispatch. Due to many factors, including but not limited to his decline in health, his chief editorial writer shooting and killing a political opponent, and the subsequent public backlash, Pulitzer moved out to New York City in 1883 and set up a new communication network. And it was in New York, the same place where he entered the United States' military, that he became one of the nation's leading voices in journalism. With ownership of the New York World newspaper, he became highly influential, making the world the country's most popular paper. He was also one of the leading voices calling for the construction of the Statue of Liberty's pedestal, which we covered in another video. However, by 1890, he left the newsroom forever due to declining health, being visually blind and severely depressed. He continued journalism, but the world would not soon forget what Pulitzer did for them. In fact, it was in 1890 that our lost marvel, the Pulitzer Building, completed construction. And now that we have the context, let's talk about how this amazing building came to be. In New York, Park Row had gained a bit of a reputation as the center of the city's news industry. In the early 19th century, it earned the moniker Newspaper Row, as several news headquarters were on the street. Among these papers were the New York Herald, The Sun, The New York Observer, The New York Times, and The New York World. The Times and The World were of the first to set up their headquarters on Newspaper Row, but the world's first building was not the Pulitzer Building. The first headquarters burnt down in 1882, causing 400,000 dollars of damage, or 11 million in today's money, and killing six people. Migrating to 32 Park Row under the new leadership of Pulitzer, the company began looking for a new location. Pulitzer bought out 11 Park Row and land from 5 to 11 Ann Street, directly across from the New York Herald's headquarters. He planned to build a very tall structure as a show of dominance from the beginning. Though James Gordon Bennett Jr., owner of the Herald, bought more area around the building, preventing Pulitzer from getting the land necessary for a skyscraper. So Pulitzer, undeterred, purchased land on Frankfort Street that was both large enough for a tower and affordable enough for the world's budget. And although the symbolic significance of the building would no longer serve as a direct challenge to the Herald, its presence would outshine any of the world's competitors. New York Times included. The architect chosen for the job was George B. Post, who had previously worked on the Times building, and he had grand designs in mind for Pulitzer. This building would be beyond ambitious, 12 stories of offices, two basements, an internal iron structure, a facade of red sandstone, and a magnificent six-story tall dome. The Renaissance revival-style skyscraper would define newspaper role, symbolizing both his paper's grandeur 
and his highest ideals of journalism. Work on the building began on June the 20th, 1889, with workers laying foundation. While excavations upended most of the surrounding sidewalks and part of Park Rose streets, temporary bridges kept traffic flowing as the basements took shape. With its cornerstone laid to much fanfare on October the 10th, 1889, work continued at a breakneck pace. Three months later, the steel structure had climbed to nine stories in height, with the masonry tailing close behind at six stories. And you will not believe the public reaction once this building was completed. But first, a word from our sponsor. Much of the information in our videos is sourced from independent research found on web pages made by real people like you and me. Which is why I'm thrilled to introduce the sponsor of today's video as Squarespace, a service I adore. So let me tell you what they offer. First off are the blogging tools which are fantastic and support a configurable share button, letting your visitors share content around the web. For me, Squarespace's blogging tools have replaced Instagram as their easy to use features allow me to share my experiences in a more noble, gallery-like environment. I also gain powerful insights into who's visiting my site, as well as how they're interacting with in-depth website analytic tools, including page views, traffic sources, time on site, most read content, audience geography, and more. I'm also considering using the Squarespace members area for our History Council group as this service connects the audience with gated members-only content where creators can manage members, send email communications, and leverage audience insights all on one easy-to-use platform. So head over to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash itshistory to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to New York's lost marvel. On December the 10th, 1890, the building reached completion to a grand celebration. Politicians spoke, newspapers across the country spilled rivers of ink, and a firework display capped off the festivities. One newspaper that had words of note was the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which called the newly finished building the most significant and most thoroughly equipped newspaper edifice in existence. And they weren't wrong, because at the time, it was the tallest building in the city, as well as the tallest office building in the world. However, as is often the case with life, it was not all happy press. Some papers like the Real Estate Record and Guide brought attention to its great height and how the narrow Frankfurt Street didn't suit it. Not to mention, the world's competitors were notably tight-lipped about its opening. Apparently, they didn't have anything nice to say, so they didn't bother saying anything at all. Speaking of competitors, the world was doing exceptionally well at the time of the world building's opening. Back then, the world's main competitor was the New York Herald, and they were being outsold. In fact, the world had a greater daily circulation than the Tribune, Sun, and New York Times combined. It was the go-to for the news of New York. And the federal government was aware of this. In 1892, the dome of the Pulitzer Building became adorned with colored lights, acting as a signal to project the year's election results in a glamorous fashion. Later on, the dome hosted a projector to display several messages in the sky. In 1908, the building received a 13-story addition on the east end of the block, along with a large stained glass window of the Statue of Liberty and the newspaper's banner, memorializing the paper's role in Lady Liberty's construction. Now, this building was incredibly advanced for the time, so let's have a look at what was inside. 
There were 18 lifts in the building, including passenger and freight elevators. The elevators were made of iron and encased in glazed brick walls. Four hydraulic elevators served passengers. Three were for the use of the office tenants below the 12th floor, while the fourth was a circular elevator that ran to the dome and was used exclusively by the world's staff. Two additional elevators were used by other employees. Nine other lifts were used to transport materials, one each for stereotype pallets, rolls of paper, coal, copy, and restaurant use, not to mention printed papers. The building was heated by a steam system and contained 3,500 electric lights at its opening. The three boilers in the sub-basement could generate a combined 750 horsepower for 560 kilowatts of electricity. In addition, there was a pneumatic tube system to transport items from the dome to the basement, a water storage tank with a capacity of 25,000 U.S. gallons was situated in the cellar and fed water to a smaller 7,000-gallon tank at the rear of the roof. There were 142,864 square feet of available floor space upon the building's opening. This number was practically doubled in 1908 with the completion of the building's William Street Annex. The hallways were tiled while the entrances were finished in marble. The floors of the World Building's office were made of Georgian pine upon a concrete base. Ash was used for woodwork finish except in the publication office where mahogany was used. The building contained a total of 250 units, of which 149 were rented to tenants and 79 were used by the world staff. Now, I'm sure that what most people admire is the dome, so let's have an in-depth look at that part of the building. The dome's frame was designed as if it were a separate structure. The dome measured 52 feet or 16 meters across at its base and measured 109 feet or 33 meters from the main roof to the lantern. The ribs supporting the dome were placed on top of the iron columns that descended directly into the building's foundation without intersecting the rest of the superstructure. The exterior of the dome was made of copper and contained cornices above the first and third stories of the dome. The fourth and fifth dome stories were divided by the ribs into 12 sections with small lunette windows on each story. At the top of the dome was a lantern surrounded by an observatory. Visitors could pay five cents to travel to the observatory and admire this incredible view, which was previously unimaginable in New York City. The six-story dome was used exclusively by editorial offices, Pulitzer's private office, and the paper's library. The first level originally housed the city editor's department and had offices for over 100 people. The main ceiling of the first dome story was 19.5 feet or 5.9 meters tall, but an overhanging gallery ran around the circumference of the dome. This overhang was 9.5 feet or 2.9 meters above the 15th floor. Pulitzer's office was on the second level of the dome and featured frescoes on the ceiling, embossed leather walls, and three large windows. The second dome story also contained the vice president's apartment, editorial writer's offices, and council chamber offices. The second level had a ceiling height of 20.5 feet or 6.2 meters, while subsequent dome stories had slightly shorter ceilings. The third level contained offices for clerical assistants, the chief artist and cartoonist, and other staff, while the fourth level contained the file room and the obituary departments. The fifth level was used as an observatory and storeroom. So although this dome stands out to most, a lot of the building's true magic happened below ground. 
There were two subsurface levels. The basement below the street had a ceiling of 10 feet or 3 meters high and protruded 6 feet or 1.8 meters under the roadway, but had an entrance at Frankfort Street due to the slope of the street. The basement contained the machinery for the building's elevator, plumbing lines, and stereotype room. There were also employee rooms and a passageway to two elevators. The sub-basement or cellar had ceilings of 16 feet or 4.9 meters high, with the boiler room containing a ceiling of 18 feet or 5.5 meters high. It extended under the sidewalk on Frankfurt and protruded the same distance under Park Row as the first basement. The cellar contained the elevator and house pumps, engine room, and printing presses, as well as a visitor's gallery. The ground floor contained the main entrance, as well as the publication office, private offices, and counting room. The main entrance from Park Row led to a large, circular rotunda running eastward, containing floor and wall decorations in white and pink marble, and a ceiling vault measuring 19.5 feet or 5.9 meters wide by 17 feet or 5.2 meters high. After the annex was completed in 1908, the ground floor lobby extended 200 feet or 61 meters between Park Row and North William Street. The world's cashiers and bookkeepers' offices occupied the mezzanine over the first floor. The original two-story annex on Frankfurt Street contained a newspaper delivery department on its lower story and a bookkeeper's department on its upper story. The mezzanine through two stories were used as offices, and at one point, advertisements indicated that there was a 75-seat assembly hall and a 350-seat assembly room available for rent. The 11th floor originally contained the editorial department of the Evening World and a two-bedroom apartment used during special occasions. The 12th story was used as a composing room and contained galleries for proofreaders and visitors. There was also a night editor's department on the 12th floor, and above that was the roof from where the dome rose. This roof was slightly graded and contained a layer of concrete and five layers of felt and asphalt above the steel beams. A penthouse on the roof located at the same height as the first story of the dome contained the offices of the managing and Sunday editor, the art and photo engraving departments, and an employee restaurant. Just a decade into the turn of the century, the New York world had reached its zenith. It was only downhill from there. The paper began declining in the 1910s and the 1920s, but their news did not slow down in an effort to increase circulation. The paper shifted its focus to more provocative and radical topics. And although this type of journalism did not attract more readership, it did attract the attention of some pretty scary figures in America. As a result, armed guards and police were stationed outside of the building around the clock as the paper continued its descent into obscurity. Nothing could save the world, and hence the paper met its disillusion in 1931. The Times was quick to swoop in and fill the void of their old competitor, gradually becoming the most extensive paper in the city, overshadowing and casting the world, its legacy, and indeed its building into the sands of time. Well, the world building no longer hosted the New York world, occupants continued to come and go, as did the owners. Come 1936, demolition proposals began to appear as part of New York City's effort to broaden the approach to the Brooklyn Bridge. However, calls for demolition temporarily went quiet as America entered the Second World War, and the world building would serve for its final notable cause. As Europe spiraled into insanity, the United States government knew that war was coming to them, despite the desire of many to remain out of the conflict. In preparation for this, the Selective Training and Service Act of 19 
1940 came into effect in November, requiring all men from 21 to 45 to register for a peacetime draft, which was the first of its type in US history. Those who the draft lottery selected had to serve at least one year in the American Armed Forces. When America officially entered the war in 1941, these draft terms increased to serve until the end of the conflict. By the time the Japanese surrendered in 1945, the military had received 50 million registrations for the draft, of which they had enlisted 10 million. At its most local level, the Selective Service enlisted the help of local draft boards to determine who in the area was physically fit for combat. New York City had several draft boards considering its size. Local draft board number one, the primary and most extensive of them, found its headquarters in the Pulitzer Building. Here, New York's best young men entered service, which is a curious outcome of events when you consider that Pulitzer had previously crossed the Atlantic in the opposite direction to serve in that same military, a road that would ultimately lead to the erection of the building that draft board number one occupied. The New World building was no longer the great symbol it once was. By the mid-20th century, the New York skyline began taking shape, and the World building was not visible in its iconic silhouette. As the push for the Brooklyn Bridge accessibility continued onward, it was condemned to demolition in June of 1953. After a brief stint as the temporary city hall, demolition work began in March of 1955, and by 1956, nothing but a vacant lot remained. Today, the site is part of an entrance ramp for the Brooklyn Bridge, and to most, its story has been forgotten. The Columbia School of Journalism preserved the stained glass window commemorating its role in the Statue of Liberty's pedestal, along with the building's cornerstones. Once the largest building in New York and the throne of the country's biggest newspaper, the World Building found itself overshadowed by a changing city, just as the publication fell into obscurity and its successor's shadow. However, the Times reported on the building repeatedly after the New World went under, providing updates on the marvels it held long after its demolition. Which begs the question, had they finally found a respect for an old rival, or were they simply capitalizing on the fallout? So next time you're traveling over the Brooklyn Bridge, take note that the convenience of the expanded roadway came at the expense of what was once the city's most outstanding building. We actually did a video about the Brooklyn Bridge, and I was amazed to find out that at one point, Point, elephants were used to prove its safety. So make sure you check that out. Join our memberships, subscribe, smash the bell. This is Ryan Sokash signing off.